So this is the uh, second in a four-part series on the book of Esther. And like I did last time in the reading of X, Esther 3 and 4, I've made an abridged version. So I'm going to hold my Bible so that you know I'm reading from the Bible, but I'm going to read off the screen because that's where the abridged version is. And so we hear God's word from Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, some son of Hamadatha, let's say, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all that of all the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, this is a there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to kill, to, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. And when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do, and when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord.
when God is silent. One of the unique features of Esther is that nowhere in this book is God's name mentioned. No time does God say to Mordecai, say this or do this or go there. Mordecai and Esther are sort of on their own. So today we're going to look at how do we live in a time when God is silent. Never mind, hang on. Yep, yep, okay. And it strikes me that as we think about this story and pay attention to how God is silent in this story and what still happens, that that would be a good pause for us to wonder, how can we see God at work around us when he's not proclaiming out loud, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to see, this is what you need to say. And probably even more important in my mind is, how do you in this world do God's work quietly without mentioning him? I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but if you talk to folks who aren't part of Christianity and the church and those kinds of things, they're on guard if you come and start with, hey, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, and this is what I think you need to know, right? They're a little careful around us, if you will. So what if, in light of the Pentecost sermon where we saw that the Holy Spirit's actually been poured out on all peoples, God has sent his spirit into the world before us to do mission to lead us there, what if also... There are ways, not always, this isn't the only method, there are ways that we can actually touch people's lives without being overtly biblical, Christian, using that language, etc. Good news, I had a chance to practice last night. We had a street party on Walcott Court where we live. And you know, when I came here, I started teaching about um, missional work in your neighborhood and so on. And, we landed really, really fortunately because we, this is the 20th anniversary of the Walcott um, Street gathering. So we did not have to do any organizing. We didn't have to start the process. But while I was talking with my neighbors, I was thinking in the back of my mind, they do know what I do, so they do bring it up once in a while. But how do you have conversations that are missional, that are loving, that are presenting the truth of Jesus without being a preaching preacher in my case? So that's what I thought about well, here's some ways as we can learn them from um, Esther. First, worship the Lord your God, which is one of the Ten Commandments, one of the base Ten Commandments, if you will, right? As we worship God, people see that we're followers of Jesus. Now, I'm going to put a little twist on that, because a lot of us think that this is worship, and it is, and a lot of us think that this is all of our worship, right? This is one of your 168 hours of worship a week, this one maybe a little longer today, right? So the other 167 hours of your worship are done in public, right? Where you work, where you walk. And so I want to encourage you that as you worship the Lord wherever you are, you recognize that, yes, people are actually watch, watching you worship. Here's Haman's version. All the royal officials at the gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman because they were commanded to, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai made sure that his life, his action, his public action was a testimony to who he thought should be worshipped. And I want to suggest to you that how we function in public, where we bend the knee, where we spend our energy, our focus, right, is an act of testimony 
that may never bring up the word God once, but will have a powerful testimony that these people seem to think that that's not what we worship, Haman or any other idol kind of a thing. No, they seem to only want to worship when it's something that honors the one true living God. Second one, anti-racism, understanding who God's people are. He scorned the idea, this is Haman, he's a bad guy in case you can't tell. He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews. That's just like a textbook definition of racism, right? I bump into one person of a certain type that I don't like for whatever reason. Usually that's your own fault, by the way, that you don't like them. And so I just paint them all with the same brush. And let's just start with confession. We all do this kind of a thing, right? We profile kind of naturally. It's kind of human nature. We need to work on this kind of a thing. God is not saying to Mordecai here, start a campaign to fight racism, right? Mordecai's simply being himself. But note that in this story, and we'll see that as we get towards the end, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, right? Things are going to turn around. When God sees his people, and in the New Testament, everybody is God's people, right? Let's not do a really strict line because if you go to church, you're in, and if you're not in church, you're out. God loves all people, whether they've responded or understood that or not is a secondary question. God loves all people, right? He wants justice for everyone. And so part of our task is to recognize that when there's injustice, when some people are being marginalized or put down or anything along those lines, God's paying attention. God's paying attention. And I want to encourage us to say, I want to get in, get in alignment with what God is paying attention to when racist, racist things happen in our world. You'll note in our publications this week, right, that we had um, January, how do you say that word, Ruthann? Juneteenth, not January. It's June, isn't it? Yep. Look outside. It's nice and warm. Juneteenth, right? We had Refugee Awareness Day, right? We are recognizing that there's um, disparity and inequality in our world. And I want us to at least hang on to this much today. God's recognizing that and paying attention to those things too. God is um, upset when there's disparity in our world. And then God controls the dice. Before I say anything after that, this is not an encouragement to gamble, all right? Maybe play Yahtzee. We'll give you that one. But whatever happens in this world, God has a hand in what happens with it. So notice this. In the first month, the month of Nisan, the per, that is the lot, and then you say, well, why didn't they just say the lot right away? Because this whole story is going to end in the Feast of Purim, or Purim, P-U-R-I-M. Right? And so they wanted our good English translator said, leave that word in there so they all know where we're going, that God was at work even as Haman and his cohorts were rolling the dice or picking names out of a hat, however they cast a lot. We're not really sure about that. But notice what happened. It was the first month when they did this, right? And if you're in January, that's why I needed January. If you're in January and what's going to happen is really, really bad for you, which month did you want it to happen in? Anyone? December, the 12th month. Look what day God makes the lot, or month God makes the lot land on. It's the 12th month. It's called Adar here, but it's the 12th month. God had a hand in even that. 
And then basic human decency. God is at work in basic human decency. Keep the money the king said to Haman, do what you, with the people as you please. What a horrible thing for a leader with power to say. Just do whatever you want with those people. And the couriers went out, and the edict, edict was issued, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. They probably sat down to get drunk, because that seems to be the theme of this story on their part. But the city of Susa was bewildered. So when horrible leaders do horrible things, and people are in shock, I see God at work in that, that basic human decency that people don't start bandwagoning and saying, yeah, we should go to war. Yeah, we should ruin those people's lives. People sit back and they're going, it may not even be me, but that's terrible. And if you're in a community of people near where you live or in your workplace, and you're able to have conversations about current events, and they also have this sense that this is horrible, just take note. God's Spirit's probably at work there, and you can probably enter into that conversation and recognize that they may not officially know Jesus yet, but they might be on the way to something that you have in common because Jesus is at work. Even without the name, sometimes God is powerfully at work. And then ex trusting expressions of emotion. I trust that I'm speaking mostly to people of Dutch origin here. My apologies to you if you're not, but... We're not the only ones, but we're not really that good of public emotion, right? Maybe anger, definitely not crying. Number one thing I hear said when somebody cries in my presence is, I'm sorry. As if crying's bad. Crying, if you look at the Bible, is number one emotion to share in public, right? News to us all, right? But lament is a form of psalm. It's like standardized in the Bible how to cry, right? Mordecai knew that when he learned all these horrible things that were done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. And, and you may know this, that Jewish people actually hire mourners to wail really loudly at funerals to make sure, right, that the emotion is gotten out. And I want to suggest to you that God's at work when we are actually able to express our emotion before others and to whatever degree you are able to do so, right? That this is a healthy, good thing where we can see, right? So I pay attention to this this way. One, if you're crying, I know something's going on for you, and I'll ask about it. The other one is, if you make me cry, if I'm listening to your story and I'm getting tears because I sent something meaningful and powerful that's way beyond you or I or this conversation is going on, I sense God is at work. Pay attention to the emotion that goes on inside of you as God's at work around you, you may see some signs that he's right there again, even if his name isn't mentioned in that conversation. And then faith that good will triumph. This is Mordecai talking to Esther. If you remain silent at this time, he says, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. How does, how does Mordecai know that? By faith, right? God didn't speak. See, God doesn't speak in this book. He had this assumed sense he knew his history, likely, right? He'd seen God at work before. God was going to come through in this circumstance. It didn't really look like it. It looked like they were going to get wiped out. But Mordecai, by faith, stood on this deep, deep sense that God wins in the end, that God's conclusion of the story, every story, our story, is that God's will and his truth prevails. This is one, again, we can use in any neighboring conversation you might enter into. Be a person who exudes confidence that God's got this, right? 
If we join our world in saying, oh man, the world's really in a lousy spot right now, and there's places where it certainly is, but don't know and can't testify that God's got this, that I may not know how he's going to get there, but he's going to solve this. He's going to bring us to an end that is now the dwelling place of God is with his people here on earth. Hang on to that faith. Express that faith, right? And it will show, that confidence will show that God's at work even in circumstances where it doesn't seem like he's active. And then having a clear vision. This is the punchline of the book of Esther. This is the one that usually gets preached on. And who knows, Mordecai says to Esther, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Right? So I call this clear vision, but notice it comes in the form of a question because it's a clear vision looking back now. But as you're having a vision, as you have a sense of what God wants us to do, I encourage you to do it in the form of a question. Perhaps God wants us to go over there. And if it is God's clear vision, likely he will also motivate the people. He will also make it happen. He'll find a way to get us there. But this clear vision of recognizing God put you in this place. That's my trust. That's my faith. We're in this difficult circumstance. I bet, I sense, I'm going to call this one that God's probably going to use you to turn this thing around. And as you know, if you know the end of the story, that's what happens. And then a disciplined approach. This is Esther speaking to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. Now, if you went on the spiritual disciplines retreat for me, you're lucky I hadn't read Esther yet. We would have been there for three days without water or food. We only did about 24 hours. The point isn't which exact disciplines you use, but do you have in your life a regular pattern where you bump into God and what he's about and have other people in conversation with you about what he's about in this world so that when the time comes, you have a sense, I've been sitting with God, and I think what I'm feeling here, what I'm wondering here, what I'm seeing here is exactly what I need to do. Do you have a disciplined approach to life such that there are patterns in your life that put you in regular contact with what God might be doing. And then finally, sacrificial obedience. When this is done, says Esther, the fasting, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I don't know how many of you have had to make a claim like that. I'm going to go stand on this truth and if that means that's it for me, I'm going anyways. Without a clear prophetic direction from God, with a deep conversation with Mordecai, with a very basic trust that God's got this, Esther puts her life on the line. And of course, we have as our leader, Jesus, the one who did this in the most full possible way because it did cost him his life, right? And he's not asking each of us to find a way to perish because he already did that for us, but he is calling us to this sort of sense of life that the most powerful testimony you can give isn't necessarily the words that you speak, 
and your explanation of how theology and Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit work in the Bible and so on, those are great things, but your most powerful testimony is, are you willing to be sacrificial in your obedience? Are you willing to lay down your life for truth for others, for causes that are meaningful and life-changing in this world? Do you trust enough that God's got this, that he will win, that even if you don't have a clear message from him, you will say, I will obey. I will go. I will give. I will serve. We do that in little things. Any opportunity you have to serve here in this church, on your street, in your family, and we do this in large ways when we're called to say, now we need to stand together for those who need Jesus, for those who need truth, for those who need support, and for those who need love. Let's go to God in prayer. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the story of Esther and the way that, in spite of the fact that your father's not even mentioned in the story, we see you at work. We see your touch. And thank you, Jesus, that you showed us fully, openly in this world what it means to live in obedience and in faith. And we pray that you'd also continue to fill us with your spirit so that we may have the wisdom to know when it is that we are to make these claims, to make these stands, to step out in faith and to trust you fully. We pray, Lord Jesus, for your blessing on our lives, on our community, on our world. In your name we pray. Amen.